0: Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 17. We're back in our Acts series today. I just want to quickly note that without Sunday school now for the kids, don't feel embarrassed as a parent or anxious that your kids are making noise Uh, We love to hear life in this church. And uh, so uh, let them play and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, (laughs) do what you do as parents. But, um, you know, don't uh, be embarrassed. Don't feel scared if your kids make some noise. That's okay. That's just going to encourage everyone else who doesn't have kids just to sit closer to me. So, um, uh, and that's okay. So. (laughs) But uh, as you're turning to Acts chapter 17 in your Bibles, I hope you have them. We do put them up on the screen, but uh, I would rather you in your actual word to make sure what I'm saying is true. Um, But uh, if you have your Bibles and as you're flipping there, what's funny is that today it's commonly held that it's fine to be a Christian as long as you don't take your Christian faith too seriously. Christianity has produced some of the world's greatest minds, and some of her uh, uh, doctrines are fascinating for intellectual exercise, but to take them too seriously, the world looks down upon us. They think we're backwards. They think we're annotated and, and we're out of date. But that not only describes the attitude that we commonly face as Christians, it also describes what the church has been going through through decades of history and it's what Paul encountered and faced as he lands in Athens. Paul, if you remember, is one of the most passionate and fiery Christians who have ever lived. And as he heads into Athens, he is he is he collided head on with the dispassionate intellectualism of Athens. And the story of Paul versus Athens, can set our hearts on fire and that's my prayer for us today as a church that as we go through our verses today that the fires of our motivation to encounter people and make people or make Christ known to people would either be lit new for the first time in our lives or the holy spirit would begin to fan those flames and grow that desire in our lives so with that in mind The first thing I want you to see as we head into Acts seventeen verse sixteen is that there is a brokenness that leads to action. There's brokenness that leads to action. So let's read Acts seventeen verse sixteen to about twenty one, and then I'll make some observations. Now, while uh, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him uh, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Something new. So if it feels like you're just kind of jumping right into the middle of a story, you are. If you remember last week, we took a break. We looked at Luke 15. We were in church in the park, but now we're back in Acts. So you have to remember two weeks ago, Paul was pushed out of Berea for preaching the gospel. He was sent to Athens by boat, and he is awaiting for Timothy and Silas to join him. They are still currently in Berea or making their journey towards him in Athens, Paul doesn't take this as a way, well, I'm going to put my feet up by the pool today. He's getting to work. He is working. And the first thing we see in these verses is that at first it's talking about a brokenness in general that leads to action. But what leads to that is that the gospel that we believe should cause us to grieve. See, as he was waiting for Silas and Timothy, what Paul was doing was he was actively learning his environment. He was actively observing Athens and the community around him. He was making observations. He was spending time being what I like to call a cultural missionary. He was taking notes and what was going on. He was investigating what made people tick, what they believed, what they were thinking. And we should be doing the same thing here in Drumheller. We should always be cultural missionaries here in learning the culture around us that is shifting and changing, and we shouldn't hide from it like the church has historically done, not just ours, but the church in general. We hide so often from society, and we close ourselves off that we become outdated in our thinking, and we forget what's going on outside those doors, but we should be cultural missionaries, but the word provoked there in verse 16 in your Bible, your version might say greatly distressed if you read the NIV, and the word literally means to be upset, to be angered, to be saddened. I think the NIV also gets this right when it uses distress. Mine uses provoked, which makes sense, but I think it falls short. Distressed is what we want to feel and see Paul is having, the emotions that he's having. He's he's sad over what he's seeing. He's upset over what he's seeing. And to try to feel what Paul is feeling, remember a time when you have observed a situation that you felt deeply distressed by something that has caused your conscience to be saddened by the circumstances you saw. Maybe this happens when you see on the news a storm go through and devastate an entire community or the tragic tragic death of a little one like we saw on the news just recently. Maybe this happens when you see someone who just can never get a leg up in life. They start making a couple steps forward and another storm hits them in life and knocks them down a couple peg, one disaster after another. Whatever it may be, we typically feel Feel in our hearts, this emotion when we see someone in desperate physical need, when we see someone who is poor or hungry or malnourished, we have the feeling of grief or distress like we could do something. And this feeling should compel us to do something. We shouldn't ignore that. Certainly there is a tremendous, uh, a tremendous uh, ability at the level of the very practical, physical need that we can care for orphans, the Bible says. We can take care of widows. We can care for the poor, that we meet their needs. But as a church, we must take the step beyond that as well. To just doing humanitarian work, we have to move to the gospel. I'm not saying we don't do humanitarian work. We must do that, but we must move to the gospel. We need to move to the heart behind why we're doing what we're doing. My ultimate motive as your pastor is not just to make sure that you're fed in your body. That is one of my concerns, but it's also that you're nourished in your soul. And that should be your concern as well. That should be your motive as well that drives us as a church. There are a lot of things even practically in ministry that we can do here in Drum and that we're doing here in Drum. Caring for people, meeting physical needs, financially, physically, everything, you name it. We're, we're, we're attempting to do it. But we must step, in that, the step forward and make the connection to the gospel. Because if we don't bring it to the gospel then our church just becomes any other humanitarian organization here in the valley. There's no distinction. But we must share the gospel. We want to go beyond just meeting physical needs to the heart and soul level. And this takes a lot of shapes and forms. So for here in Paul, he was grieved by what he saw. And we see that in verse 16. And we also see in verse 17 that he understood that gospel conversations are not just exclusive to church. Like every other place we've read in the book of Acts, where does Paul begin? He goes to the synagogue. He goes somewhere where they have some presupp- presuppositions of shared language and at least some component of faith that he could stand on. But then we also see him intentionally going where? Where does the Bible say? Marketplace. Marketplace. Thank you. That it goes to the marketplace. I'm not just going to talk about Jesus in church, he's saying. I'm going to talk about Jesus in the marketplace, in the shopping center. And if he was a good Canadian, at the hockey rink. And whatever it may be, whatever it may be, it's not just restricted while I'm at church or while I'm in life group. We must be committed as a church to sharing the gospel outside these four walls here at Fellowship Baptist Church. And this looks a lot of different ways. And this is actually one of my hopes as we head into the fall and we resume life groups, that we study together as a church how to become more gospel fluent in our language, how we become trained on sharing the gospel, how we can be a church that is committed to taking what we believe with all of our life and taking it out to the darkest places of our communities, beyond these walls, and that we get out of the mentality of come and see. We've operated as churches so long as come and see, come and see. But we have to go and show and tell. Amen? Amen? We have to go and show and tell the gospel to the world. Because we can't just rely on what the organizational system of what our church looks like and how we function. It's important. We need it. But it's not the only stream. That is too narrow. Biblically, what we see is that you and I, every single day, we're committed to being faithful Christians in Babylon. We're being faithful Christians in exile as we wait for our Lord to come. And we courageously speak the name of Jesus, not just in church, but in your homes, to your kids, to your spouse, to your, to, to your family members around you, that you speak the gospel in your neighborhood with your friends and family, having the courage to make Jesus known, all of us. And as we see here in our text, Paul interacts with the Athenians. He understands that they desired knowledge, your Bible says. They were interested to know more. They were intrigued for information. It wasn't a matter of that they're not wanting to listen. Like, get out of here, you street preacher. They were engaging him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And I just want to let you know that that hasn't changed. People are by and large interested in conversations about God. Because people are spiritual. People long for spiritual conversations. They might not believe in God, but they're going to want you to send some positive vibes when the life gets hard. They're interested in spiritual conversations. Just this week, I try now to take 30 minutes a day. I I escape from my computer and all my sermon prep, and I escape from my meetings for just 30 minutes, and I walk downtown Drumheller, and I try to pray for people and tell them about Christ. Every week, I aim for every day. I don't make it every day. But just this week, I ran into two wonderful ladies. And we had a great conversation about Christ. I was able to pray with them. And i got been able to share with them why I was praying with them. And they thanked me for that. And as we were leaving, the one turned around. And with tears, she said, thank you. I needed this right now. This is what I needed. It came at the right time. People are hungry spiritually. Here in Drumheller, not just across the seas, but here in Drumheller, people are hungry spiritually. And most are willing to talk about spiritual things. Now don't get me wrong, before I had that conversation, four people looked at me like out had a third eye. Like, who is this guy? You're going to get rejected. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's guaranteed success. But there's one out there waiting for you to be obedient to the calling that Christ has put on you. And as we do that, 1 Peter 3.15 gives us a warning. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, here's the warning. What do we do it with? Gentleness and respect. These are people we're dealing with. They're not cattle. These are people have real lives, real stories. Oh, I didn't get it. Maybe I didn't even put, oh, there we go. I went too far. Sorry about that. Thanks, Jason. (laughs) Um, uh, These are real people who have real stories and the gospel can impact them powerfully. And that's what we see Paul. As he's grieved, as he's upset, he's angry with what he's seeing. He's disturbed and saddened, but he still treats the people of Athens with respect. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't look down upon them. He treats them with gentleness, just like Peter warns us to do, because Paul understands that for many, the gospel may seem strange. It's weird. For the Athenians who were listening, this was just a weird idea for Paul to preach. We even see two philosophical groups mentioned, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And just briefly, without going into too much detail, the fundamental philosophical beliefs of these two groups actually dictate how both of them respond to the gospel message. And it's important for us to see that because in these two mindsets, in these two belief systems, a lot of us, even maybe in this church, function under this thought, but a lot of people in our community do as well. The Epicureans were concerned with pursuing happiness. All they were on it was happiness and contentment. They were polytheistic, which means they believed in multiple gods and worshipped many gods, and they were committed to keeping, here it is, their religion separate from their daily life. What they did on Sunday, Didn't matter what they did throughout the rest of the week. I can do all my time on Sunday morning. It doesn't impact anything. I can forget all about it until the next Sunday. We hear that constantly with Christians. But if that's you here today, I want to tell you that that's not biblical. That's not right because God is Lord of all. I can't separate my faith from my life. It is my life. It is your life. But that's the part of the Epicurean mindset. So this gospel message seems strange to them. What do you mean he's Lord of all? This is strange. The Stoics, on the other hand, sought to live in harmony with peace. May, if any of you raised in the 70s, you know this philosophy. They were pantheistic, which means God, it's a religion that God is everything. He's in the universe. I just want to self-actualize with that and just connect. That's my father, sorry. Um, and uh, he was a hippie. And I want to connect with God through nature and through that. And God's in this pulpit. He's in this stapler. He's everywhere, right? he It's this uh, uh, type of a God is in the universe. And uh, it's very very hippie-ish, and that's a very much still an idea today, and this is helpful to be aware of how people live, how they believe, and how they view life, and what lens they're viewing it for, because it connects back to what I said earlier, that we must always be cultural missionaries, that we need to be learning and observing how people are living as we present the gospel according to that, but what did Paul's uh, listeners conclude? In verse 18, it says, What is this babbler? Who is this babbler? This guy is just going on and on. The word babbler literally comes from the idea of birds just picking up leftover seed. So Paul, they're saying, is just picking up an idea he heard and he's making it his own. It's as if this guy, they're saying, he's coming to talk to us, the philosophers of Athens. We are prestigious philosophers. Do you know who's in our lines? And uh, who is this little guy with uh, minimal ideas that are leftover from other religions? Who does he think he is? And here they view him literally a uh, uh, little, they view him differently. They belittle him and they view him as strange. And I think that largely the world just looks at us as Christians, as pure, just weird, strange, People, they don't understand us. As the world progresses and it continues to progress and they continue to tell us that our way of living is out of date and our morals are evil and they're filled with hatred. As they question why you who are sitting in these chairs spend Sunday after Sunday and other days throughout the week. As they question why you give your money to this, uh, this place you call a church. As they begin to question all the things you do, they'll be constantly looking at you with suspicion because they think you're weird and maybe even meeting you with rejection. Because the message we hold dear, the Bible says, is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. And if we believe that message, then we too are considered fools in their eyes. So the gospel may seem strange, and that's okay. Paul experienced that. But, and they immediately push back. But what I think is interesting is, although they think his ideas are premature or insignificant or low-level philosophical ideas... They were still intrigued enough at least to ask him, or they were at least open to go, okay, I think you're a babbler, but we need to talk about this. We need to hear what you're saying. And the world, this is because the world is more amazed by our silence than by our message. See, our message does offend, but what's more offensive is our silence as Christians. Here's why. If any of you here like watching magicians, you probably know the name Penn and Teller. And I think they're an amazing act. Penn and Gillette, you can YouTube this for yourself, is a self-professed atheist. He, and he had a genuine conversation with a Christian. There's a video of him discussing this that compelled him to think. And here's what he communicated in this selfie-style video that you can watch. He says, if you really believe, talking about Christians, these are his words, if you really believe that what you believe, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them what you believe. That's convicting. How much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them about Jesus? If you really, as a Christian, believe what you say you believe about Jesus, that he is the only way to eternal life, that every other way leads to hell, then how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them? about Jesus. John Piper even says he describes Christianity as being breaking news. I mean, this is not just religion. This is different. Imagine how you'd respond if breaking news popped up on your phone right now. Breaking news that another storm has went through and devastated a community. Breaking news that your political leader was caught in a scandal. Breaking news that your sports team, the Oilers, lost again. Breaking news, whatever it might be that you're interested in. If breaking news comes up, What do you do? Well, you grab your cell phone, you share it maybe on social media because you want other people to hear that message. Or maybe in the church lobby, you don't know what to talk about, so you go, well, did you hear about this on CTV News last night? Did you watch this on CBC News last night? Did you see that the other day? Because we want to want to make sure that people know what we saw. We want to make sure that they're aware of what we heard. This is breaking news. This is important. But how much more motivated and compelled should we be as followers of Jesus Christ to tell the good news of Jesus? That it's breaking news that God sent his son to earth, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that we, you and I, might be in right relationship and in good standing with the creator of the world, the transcendent God, the holy God who demands holiness, who hates sin, who will kill anything that comes in his presence that is not Holy, but now Jesus clothed us in his righteousness that we might stand face to face with this holy God. How is that not breaking news? See, when we believe that, we as Christians would rather live with rejection than regret. We would rather live with people saying, No, 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 I don't want to hear about that, get out of my face, than with regret. But let's continue to look at what Paul does. The second thing we see today is that Paul begins to encounter the people of Athens and he began with the end in mind. He had the end in mind. Let's read verses 22 to 28, picking up there. So Paul, standing in the midst of Arapachis, said, Men, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are deed his offspring. Those last two quotes there, are actually two quotes from their philosophers from Athens, which just shows you the mind of Paul, that this isn't some low-level guy they're dealing with. He's a brilliant intellect, that he's even studied their People. But just for a little geography lesson, it is pretty fascinating where God leads Paul to the places that he allows him to have this conversation. The Areopagus is often commonly known as Mars Hills. Mars Hill. You probably have heard of that. This is a real place in Greece. It's a mountaintop that is made out of marble. It would have been a beautiful sight. And in ancient times, this was the place where they would come to have all their great debates, all their significant trials would take place here. In fact, even Socrates was trying here and condemned here for showing lack of reverence. This is a prestigious spot. This is like the modern day Supreme Court to these guys to, to where people come to discuss, to debate, to determine what's right and wrong and what's truly true. And it's significant to note that Paul was invited to this prestigious place. And as he was talking with these people of Athens that, okay, they view me as a babbler. But they t- they've taken me to Mars Hill. They've taken me in. And they're really going to hear me out. This is where the true debate is going to happen. And there's a lot we can learn from this. There's a lot we can learn from Paul here. And our approach to sharing love with the people around us. And it translates in how we have these gospel conversations today. And the first one is this. That he started with common ground. See, Josephus, you've probably heard that name, he was an ancient historian, he called the Athenians the most religious of all Greeks. They loved to learn, they loved to discuss, and they loved to debate. Remember earlier, Paul was distressed, he was split, he was saddened over these false gods, but he also recognized that these false gods was the area where he needed to start. This was the common ground that he could stand upon. He stepped into the moment. He says, I see that you guys are very religious. I see that you're religious people. I see that you come and you 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 love to talk about these things. You like to worship these God." And Paul's going to take their religious attitude that they're embracing these many gods and say, there's not many gods. There is one God, one true and living God. And that's the common ground he started with. And I think it's important for us, especially my generation and the generation before mine, we grew up in a Canada where you could make some presuppositions that the people you are running into on the streets had some understanding of Jesus. Even when I was still in grade school, we were praying the Lord's Prayer every day in Jesus' name. But now, and I've talked about this before, we live in something called a post-Christian Canada, meaning we were, quote-unquote, a Christian nation, whatever that means, and now we have moved past that. We are no longer that. And now people all across Canada, including here in Drumheller, have never even heard the name of Jesus before. And that might sound surprising to you or unbelievable, but I've talked to them here in Drumheller. This is true. It's not hypothetical, and it could be true about your neighbor. So we need to change our mindsets a little when it comes to reaching the lost. We cannot assume that they have any knowledge of Jesus. Let's let's compare it this way. If we look at Acts chapter 2, and you consider Peter's presentation of the gospel to the Jews, he's talking to the Jews who had the same scriptures, and he says, hey, this is what your scriptures have said. This is what your prophets have said. This is what your laws have said. And you use the common understanding to say, but that's not what it's pointing to. It's actually pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, and thousands were saved. But now look at Paul's message in Acts 17. There is no common ground. He can't go, hey, remember that Bible verse you once heard? Remember John 3.16? Everyone knows John 3.16. They've never seen Scripture before. They don't know what he's talking about. This is brand new information. And so we, we may have grown up in an Acts chapter 2 Canada where there's some common biblical ground, but now, whether we like it or not, we live in an Acts 17 Canada. We live amongst people who have no understanding of the gospel. So the way we present Christ, the conversations we have, the way we understand and take the gospel as cultural missionaries carrying hope into the everyday world, we have to do so with the mindset of not Acts chapter 2, but Acts 17. So as we reflect on that, how are we expressing the love of Christ? How are we doing? How are we mentioning the name of Jesus? How are we starting with common ground? because God desires to be known in church, and you and I are his hands and feet. We need to build relationship with our community. We need to find common ground. You need to do that with your neighbors, with your friends. We need to do that as a church, as a whole, with our community. And here's the second thing we see Paul's, in Paul's presentation. He started with common ground, but he had a desire that they would see God's glory. And what's interesting is Paul could have easily started with his near-death experiences. He could have started with all the experience of coming to faith, that uh, this resurrected Jesus, you have statues, but I've seen this Jesus. He knocked me off my horse and blinded me. He could have started all oh, with these miracles. I've seen people get up and, and healed and raised from the dead. Like I, Look, you have to believe in this God, but he doesn't do that because that wouldn't convince them. Because none of that compares to God himself. He pointed them to God. What you win people with, you win them to. If you win them with experiences, you win them to experiences, not to Jesus. You win them to worship and experience after experience after experience. We must point people to God and his glory. In verse 24, he says, God is not made with human hands. He's not an idol. He is the creator. He's not made. In verse 25, he says, he's the giver of life and breath. In verse 24 and 25, he says that God doesn't uh, need us. He's self-sufficient. He is self-reliant. He's above all things. In verse 26, he says, he is in control of everything. He is a sovereign. God, in verse 27 and 28, he says, God is near. He's not far from you. He's not distant. He's not living up on some mountain that you can't obtain. He's with you. He's close. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. And he gives and he sustains life. He discerns when nations should rise and he declares when nations should fall. You see, the mission that you and I are living is life and death. It's life and death. It's a mission that is the matter of life and death. It's not a matter of you winning an argument. It's not a matter of you winning a debate. That's not what Paul's doing here. If all you're known for is being a keyboard warrior online to prove all those atheists wrong, if all you're known for every time you engage somebody who's not a Christian is just ramming facts down their throat, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. It's a matter of life and death. And our objective, our hope, is not that I try to swoon you or convince you through logic and reason. I need to point you to God, to the creator, the sustainer of life, the giver of breath and everything in creation to let you see him for who he is, that he is the God of glory. And when you see that, he opens your eyes, not me. Our aim should be to point others to him because when we do, we step out of darkness and into marvelous light. He refers to this in verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him because he's not far from any of us. And and when you read feel, don't think that Paul is advocating for a Christian faith that is dictated by your feelings because your feelings are dangerous. They deceive you. You may not feel one day good about your relationship with Christ, but that doesn't affect your salvation. Because if it did, I'd be a lost cause by now, and so would all you, because our feelings rise and fall with the temperatures around us. We, we should be thermostats. We should set temperatures, but we're more like thermometers, right? We go up and down, up and down. But our salvation is not reliant on our feelings. Rather, what you need to picture here is a person who is feeling their way. They're blind and they're stumbling. They're they're navigating by touch and feel and they're trying to gain their surroundings. And his listeners who he's talking to, and maybe some of you here today, they're in darkness and they're trying to find their way toward Towards the light. And the only way that they can do this is by feeling, by reaching out and feeling and grabbing onto something that is true. And that's what Paul is communicating, He's saying, I need you to see the hope of Christ. I need you to step out of darkness and into light and towards God, feel your way towards God. I'm trying to tell you that God is true, that you can latch on to that truth, that you can hold on to it, and you can see that it's an anchor that will sustain you in life, not because you are strong, but because he is strong. Friends, we are not saved and secure in our salvation because we hold closely to Jesus. It's because Jesus holds closely to us. Amen? So what we see is Paul presenting the gospel, the word of God. And whenever the gospel, the word of God is presented, it demands a response. So when Paul gets to verse 29 where the response starts, It's like he's telling them, I've been telling you about Jesus. I've been pointing you to the gospel. I've been talking about Jesus and his resurrection. This is who God is. And now it's time that you do something about it. I presented you with the facts. Now it's time to respond. So let's pick up our reading in verse 29 and finish it off. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their uh, their midst, but some of them joined them and believed among those who were Dionysius, the uh, Aropagia, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Why does the Bible have to put weird words in the middle of the text there? So Paul understands that, um, that he's pointing them to God that he's calling you to move. And the response these steps towards Paul, he uh, towards God, Paul lays out and they look like this. In verse 29, he calls them to recognize that God's personal. You're calling people that you're talking to To a personal God. He goes back where he started with common ground. That he sees all these idols and he reminds them that God is not made with gold and silver. You can't use your imagination to fabricate this God. That's not God. He's alive and active. He's a spirit and he's truth. And he's a being that wants to have personal relationship with you. He's a personal God unlike any of their gods. He is cutting right to the heart of the Stoics who say that, well, God is just one with nature and I'll connect with him through nature. He's cutting right to the heart of the Epicureans who say, well, you know, what I do every day doesn't matter. Uh, I can go to church. I can have God conversations there, but I can forget about it until the next Sunday for the rest of the week. No, God is personal. He is with you all the time. He is walking with you. He is guiding you. He is knowing you like the old song in the garden. And he walks with me and he talks with me, right? And that, by the way, that song tells you the true name of God. It's Andy. Andy walks with me. Andy. Okay. So Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to believe God. For whoever draws near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those that seek him. But secondly, after you point them to a personal God, We call them to repent. He says in verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is this idea that I'm going one direction and then I have a wake-up call, kind of like the prodigal son last week. They come to the realization that they need to change, that I need to turn from my old ways, I need to turn from my idols, and I need to make a 180 and go back to God. Some of you make a 360, just go back the other way. But uh, you need to make a 180 and go right to God. You see your need to change. He even says specifically, now that they know better, they have heard the truth, now you're accountable for it. They're accountable for what they hear. And the last warning as we close is the warning of a returning king. So today he says you hear the news of Christ, you're accountable for it. There, are, but and some of you are saying it's time to repent, it's time to change, it's time to step into this marvelous light, to feel my way towards God. He's coming again. And Paul even points them to this, to the fact that the resurrection is going to happen. And that elicits a response of mockery. But this is the return of a king. Who is going to bring ultimate judgment? Remember where they're standing. Mars Hills, what Mars Hill was the ultimate place of judgment for these Athenians. But he's saying, Your judgments are grand, but his is greater. This is an ultimate judgment of Christ. The message of Christ and his resurrection triggers this response of mockery. People begin to hear his resurrection and the teaching of the resurrection of Christ triggers them. Some of them respond negatively. Some of them respond that they want to hear more. Notice that the same way he started in verse 18 in the marketplace is the same way he ends on Mars Hill. He's proclaiming the simple truth that Jesus, Jesus is alive and his resurrection. That's the message of hope, that Jesus is alive. And it's an attractive message. The uniqueness of Christ's work, yes, on one hand is strange, and people will see it as strange. It maybe even will offend them. It, I guarantee it will. But it's also attractive. It attracts the ones that Jesus has died for. The ones whom the Father has given the Son who He will not lose. It attra- it's attractive. I tell you what, the most attractive thing is His grace. It's so attractive because we don't deserve life. We don't deserve peace. We don't deserve purpose. We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. But out of His grace, He has given me and you What we don't deserve, which is new life and eternal life and righteousness that is not our own. There is no other religion on this planet that can save you, that gives you this type of grace. The only way to the Father, my friends, is through Jesus Christ. Every other trail will lead you to damnation. So as you go home, Think about the gospel message that you heard maybe a few years ago or maybe some of you 40 years ago or longer. And think about what attracted you to that gospel message. Think about what drew you in. And then learn that and rehearse that and share that attractiveness with those around you. You are, every single one of you as believers in Christ are carriers of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? He lives inside of you. That's the hope of the world. He convicts sins. And all you are called to do is take these little guys that you call feet and walk it out there and share it and live it out in front of those around you. And be ready to give reasoning with gentleness and respect of why you believe what you believe, why you have the hope that lives inside of you. So as the worship team comes and closes us in a song, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I thank you for those lovely kids, God, the ones who are sitting through, Lord, uh, up here and and, and playing. God, I pray that you bless them and bless their parents. God, I thank you, Father, that we can gather together and hear your preached word and sing songs of praise. Father, as we reflect on how Paul engaged with with the people of Athens, Lord, would you also encourage us as well, how we can connect with the people around us, that we wouldn't be just one to try to win debates and prove people wrong, but Father, that we'd be known for our love, that we'd be known for the grace that lives inside of us, that we'd be known to make Christ you, Father, known as well. God, would you give us the power and the ability to do so? In Jesus' name, amen.